Our New Testament reading and our sermon text is Mark 3, 7 through 20. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so, they could, so that they could not even eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, what a stupendous thing it is that you would meet with a people, that you would call, invite, create such a people for yourself who come not out of the cleanness of hearts or hands, but come because you call. God, would you feed us from your word? May you transform us by it. May we know the love of the triune God through it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, children, children, I would like you to listen. Actually, you can be seated as well. We don't stand up for the sermon all the time. But when we do, no, we do not. I apologize. Matt is, Pastor Matt is better at the stand-up, sit-down game, so I apologize for that. But children, I do have a question for you that I would like you to listen for to be able to give an answer at the end of the service. Now, what I'd like you to tell me at the end of the service is, what is one thing that Jesus creates or makes? What is one thing that Jesus creates or makes? Now, I am looking for a particular answer, but you can tell me any one thing. But if you tell me the, the answer I'm looking for today, you indeed will get two treats. What, what? So keep that before you. For all of us, do you know what the number one thing is to do to be safe when traveling or living overseas? The number one thing. It's to avoid large gatherings of people. It's the number one thing. U.S. embassies, and we experienced this when we lived overseas, they're always sending out notices around holidays or different things to all the expats living abroad. They said, stay away from the crowds. Right? We know that large groups of people are liable to do just about anything, especially when they're incited right, or angry or desperate for something. Even sporting crowds uh, can turn violent in but a moment, especially overseas, as we saw many times. But we know this even in the U.S., right? There are happy parades and there are angry riots. There are peaceful walks and there are masses liable to crush any who protest them or who get in their way, or don't give them what they want, right? 
Now, the reason why mobs and riots and restless crowds do such things is because they often see that there is something wrong with the world. The world is not as it ought to be. They are made up of individuals who feel inconsequential, insignificant, powerless, unable to change anything. Yet with that feeling of being inconsequential, there's also a feeling of entitlement, often alongside it. This underlying entitlement of, we deserve better. You will give us better, or we will take better from you. Can you relate to those feelings this morning? Something is wrong with the world, and I can't change it. And don't we deserve better? Shouldn't I have better? See, we do this because the world feels like just one crisis after another, right? There's famines, there's enslavement and unjust wars out there. But even in here, even in our own lives, there is sickness, there is disease, there is addiction, there is depression, perhaps even around us, demonic possession, dare I say. See, you too know what it feels like to feel the crowd's restlessness, something wrong with the world and thinking we need or deserve something better. But yet you also feel inconsequential, powerless to change it. You see, there's a reason why Jesus takes the U.S. Embassy's notes or advice. Jesus is often leaving the crowds behind. Of course, there was no U.S. Embassy then. But you know what I mean. He's always leaving the crowds behind. He does not stay with them. Have you noticed that? Especially in Mark. It's very pronounced. He preaches to them. He shows them compassion. But he's always moving away from him. Jesus doesn't hold strategy meetings about how to get the biggest crowd possible. He doesn't entrust himself to the great crowds. What does he do instead? Well, today it'll show us. He creates a new people. He creates a new people to inhabit his kingdom. And those people become citizens as well as ambassadors going out to tell the world about the king who has all authority and inviting everyone to repent and believe and to come into his kingdom, to be a citizen in said kingdom. If I say it simpler still, as it's written in your bulletin, Jesus creates a new people for himself. Jesus creates a new people for himself. So come when he calls for you. This coming will look like leaving your agenda behind in our first point and will look like coming with the aim of being with him. And then finally, it looks like going out on account of him. So look with me at our first six verses in verses uh, 7 to 12. So these six verses, we should, we should see this here. This is actually a new phase of ministry that's being launched to some degree, or at least it's a, it's a shift in Jesus' ministry. See, he's not just going to have the Galileans and those immediately around, but now it's all these cities, verses 7 and 8 name, all these cities coming from north, south, east, west, even the capital city of Jerusalem coming, some coming from over 100 miles away, which is a ridiculous distance in that day. And it's hard to turn away a crowd who has come from a long way, isn't it? Can't you hear it? We came all this way, right? Well, Mark calls this mostly Jewish crowd great, perhaps because it reaches upwards of 10,000 people. In verse 9, though, Jesus has his disciples get a small boat ready for him so that he might stand in it, likely to preach or teach. 
But why does he do this? It's because the crowds were pressing him. Now, the Greek word for pressing there, it can mean embrace affectionately. But is that what it means here? More likely, it it means its other meaning, which is to seize aggressively or violently, to fall or press upon. You see, it says in verse 9 that Jesus is at risk of being even crushed by this crowd. See, this crowd is not coming to sit down cross-legged to listen to Jesus. No, they are coming to get something they want. Later in verse 20, they won't even let Jesus or the disciples eat, it says. That this picture of the crowd's sandwiches, actually the, one of the, the primary texts we'll look at here in our other two points. But we're supposed to get a sense of what this crowd is like. Now the demon-possessed, not the disease, the demon-possessed fall not upon Jesus but before him. Right? As taught before in Mark, in ancient exorcisms, and this is quite strange to us, but many would believe that demons by, or demons by being named, they could be controlled. So for some, they believe that actually the demons are giving a last-ditch effort in trying to say the name of Jesus, calling him the Son of God to try and take power or control from him. But it's clear that they are conquered, right? They can only cry out a, a faithless confession, one that Jesus silences. And so we ask, why have the crowds come? Verse 9 said, they heard what Jesus was teaching. Nope, that's not what it says. They heard what he was doing. See, the disease came with an agenda, and seemingly they didn't care if it crushed Jesus to get it done. The demon possessed, perhaps, excuse me, came to control King Jesus, but Jesus came to do what? Do you remember? To preach and to teach. Mark 1, 14 through 15 said that. That's why he's here. And his healings and his exorcisms flowed out of his compassion. And they actually validated his ministry of what he was doing. And so the crowds don't care for his words here. They actually are coming for his wonders. The crowd has the agenda. They come with their feelings of insignificance, helplessness, powerlessness to fix their bodies, their worlds, their families, their nation. But they also come with that sense of entitlement. You are going to do something for us, Jesus. We will come so hard and fast towards you that we might even crush you to get it. This week, my barber told me about a a friend whose middle-aged sister uh, had recently taken her own life. Of course, this was tragic. And my barber, though, when I said that, said, yeah, you'd think... But you see, the sister had ordered all of her affairs. She made sure that everyone knew who got what and when. And she wrote a letter, and she said, in essence, I'm not depressed. I just don't want to live in this world anymore. I just can't handle it. Can you hear the felt insignificance, the the inability to engage or change the world around her? It's easy to feel so inconsequential. What do you have control over in your life? What can you change? You see, we might even wonder and doubt God. Why? If you're real, why do you allow such things? Why will you not act where I am powerless, where I am powerless to do anything? Suicide at times can be an expression expression even of entitlement as well. How so? Because it communicates, I don't have to face this life. It's my life. And I don't care if if the loss of me will crush anyone else. I know that this illustration is quite heavy, 
but it exposes the desperation, the desperation that people live with every day, aware of their insignificance, aware of their inability to change anything, and yet also that sense of wanting something more, being entitled to such. Mark shows a great, desperate, and perhaps entitled crowd who comes to Jesus to get what they want, even if it crushes him. Jesus, that is. So we must ask ourselves in this first point, why do I come to Jesus? Why do I come to church? Why do I practice religion? Am I interested in the words or the wonders? Is it because I love Jesus or is it because I want something from him? If you were to compare marriage and middle school love and dating or high school love and dating, right? Middle school uh, dating, having girlfriends and boyfriends, it's not because there is real love necessarily there, but because those relationships actually do something for said person, right? I'm worthy of respect, right? These people think I'm desirable and my friends would agree. Middle school, high school love is about, uh, is, is a means to an end. Marriage, marriage love sounds more like, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to enjoy you and have that reciprocated from you. Do you see the difference between these two things? One as a means to an end, one as a genuine loving relationship. The reason we need to see this difference is that when we come to Jesus or his church, if you love him, you come because you want to be with him. Not to check a box, not to say, no, I have religion figured out, right? I had a childhood friend recently say to me, man, death is scary. I got to go to church so I know where I go when I die. Do you hear it? That's middle school love, right? God is a means to an end. Religion is taking you somewhere. It's not because you actually want Jesus or want God. Instead, you and I must do something this morning. We must brace, embrace rather, a holy insignificance. Now, what I mean by that is we need to grasp our insignificance and our powerlessness in this fallen world. But alongside it, we need to grasp that there is a Savior who creates a people for himself, who came and saved said people. And the thing is that the holy insignificance does not mean you are insignificant. Actually, what it, what, it, what, it, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean you're worthless. We're not to confuse those things. A holy insignificance sheds the entitlement that we think God or the world actually owes us something. It sheds our personal agendas or temptations to use Jesus for our own ends or his church or people for our own ends. Ultimately, a holy insignificance is an anticipation not to have what Jesus can give you, but to have Jesus, to have the triune God, with or without whatever else you think you want or need. So instead of saying with the crowds, I'll take your life, Jesus, and let it be all for me and my ends, we can go this week and we can pray that famous hymn, that one line from the, the famous hymn, Jesus, take my life and let it be only, always, all for thee. Embrace a holy insignificance and come to Jesus without your agenda. Come to Jesus without your agenda. Well, come, as our second point shows, to be with him instead. For Jesus creates a new people to be with him. 
Jesus is in the business of creating a new people. In verse 13, notice again, what does Jesus do? He's getting away from the crowds, and he goes up the mountain. Now, any Jewish reader in that very moment says what? Mountains are where God meets with his people. That's where Moses met with him in Exodus 3 and 19. That's where God met with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And it's where God even makes his people his own. That was Exodus 19, right? You'll be my treasure possession. Where are they? They're at the mountain, at the foot, ready to go. See, but Jesus doesn't go up alone to meet with God, right? He's not just like a Moses, a prophet, or like Elijah, though he is a better prophet than both. He actually does something interesting here. What does he do from the mountain? He calls people to himself. That's quite godlike, isn't it? Jesus goes up the mountain and he is the one actually calling the people to himself the way God would. And so the word disciples here, just to give a, a more precise definition, up to this point in Mark, disciples have been a collection of people, not a particular 12. See, Luke 8, Luke chapter 8 names even notable women. Uh, names many of them uh, in that book who are part of this group. In Acts 1, when Judas Iscariot is replaced, the disciples say, we should choose someone who had been with us from the very beginning, right, with Jesus and us. So there's a larger group that are following Jesus. But Jesus here calls 12 or appoints 12. Now, that word appointed, it, it actually should seem odd to you, right? It could be called, chosen. It could be several words, set apart, but it's not. The Greek word here is poieo, poieo. It's a very versatile word, but in general, it means either to do or to make. Now, to do doesn't make sense, so it must mean to make. Well, in verse 14, in what sense does Jesus make the 12? Well, we need a bit of help from the Old Testament. Well, the old, in the Old Testament, it's, it's written mostly in Hebrew, right, other than some select parts in Aramaic. But by about 250 B.C., there's an, a, an official Greek translation called the Septuagint, right? And this is, this is the language of the people. This is what people are reading. And so in the Septuagint, Genesis 1.1 reads like this. I won't read it in Greek except one word. It reads like this. In the beginning, God epoiesen, poieo, right? The heavens and the earth. God made Appointed, poieo, is the word for creating out of nothing. This is stupendous. You see, Mark is recording Jesus making out of a bunch of nothings, creating a new people. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what Mark wants us to see here. This reflects that Exodus 19 picture of God organizing a people for himself, Right? And here, Jesus is creating the first 12 citizens of a new kingdom, a new people. It's actually a reorganized Israel, if you will. That's what he's doing with these 12. And you would ask, why? Why is he doing this? Well, first it tells us what? That they may be with him. That they'll be with him. Wow, what kind of special people these 12 must be, right? To be with Jesus? These are nobodies, these are liabilities at best, or traitors at worst. And they'll all be a traitor at one point or another. Only one won't come back. Simon receives the name Peter, right, which means rock. But if we read Mark, Peter's anything but rock-like. James and John are called the sons of thunder. But it's because they're rash, 
They're hot-tempered. And Luke, at one point, they even offered to Jesus, should we call down fire on those people? And Jesus is, what? No, you missed the mission here. That's not what we're doing. At least not yet. Andrew is Peter's brother. Philip and Bartholomew get more airtime in the Gospel of John. Matthew is that new name, that gift of God, who was formerly Levi, the son of Alphaeus, uh, that, that despicable tax collector that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Well, notice also there's James, the son of Alphaeus. This is probably Levi's brother, right? Same father. You have Thomas, who's a doubter in the Gospel of John. You have Thaddeus. We get not much about him. Simon the Zealot. Do you know what the Zealots were? The Zealots were radical revolutionaries, right? They're, they're storming the capital, baby. Like, they want to set up Jerusalem. That's what these Zealots are doing here. Judas Iscariot, he's the one who betrays Jesus, his name is actually, even has potential overtones of being a deceiver or being a dagger man, as some have said. Well, behold, this is your newly made, reorganized Israel. And who is it made of? Cowards, the hot-tempered, sinners, doubters, revolutionaries, and a traitor. And these are who Jesus wants to be with him. Martin Luther, you're getting two weeks of Martin Luther quotes. Pastor Matt would be so proud. Martin Luther has a quote where he says, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. What that means is the love of God doesn't go looking to find lovable ones. We are very much nobodies, liabilities, inconsequential. One moment kind, the next moment cruel. One moment patient, the next moment hot-tempered. One moment faithful and the next faithless. That is who we are. Sin is sown throughout our lives from head to toe, flowing from our hearts and minds, out through our fingertips and our tongues. And Martin Luther is saying that the love of God must poieo. It must create a new people. God must create that which is pleasing to himself, acceptable and lovely. Why? Because we would never come. We would never come of our own accord. If we did come, it would be for middle school love. It would be for our own agenda. We don't come because we don't naturally want God. In fact, our sin crushed, did crush Jesus on the cross. But in Jesus living without sin, being crushed for our sin, rising again to new life, we don't get what our agendas want. We actually get what? What God wants. And what does God want? You. It creates a path for you to come and to be with him. Out of the faithless, out of the nothing, nothings, he makes a new people for himself. Whether you are unchurched, dechurched, or churched here, you must grasp that the heart of Christianity is that the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, who is love, draws to himself an unworthy people, a people who would not want him. Why does he do so? So that you might be with him. That you might be with him. So are you a nobody? Are you a liability? Are you inconsequential in this world? God desires, calls, nay, he creates you. He creates out of you a people for himself. So this week, would you wrestle with this? Would you wrestle with this question? Is being with God the aim of all my religious activity? 
Or is it for something else? Is being with God the aim for which my heart beats and my lungs heave air? Whatever the answer is, pray to God, please make it so. Please create it so in me. Poyeo it, in me, God. See, being with him is what we were created for. Well, in our final point, we come not with our agenda, but we rather come to be with him. And in so doing, what does he do with us? He sends us out to the world. And our final point, we see here a shape of Jesus' mission starting to take form. You remember in Mark 1, Jesus began to preach the gospel. He then called two sets of brothers to follow him. And then his preaching was validated by him healing people and by casting out demons. And then here in Mark 3, what do we see again? Jesus is preaching and teaching, and the crowds are growing, right? But now he does what? He calls disciples, right? Similar pattern. One interesting note about the disciples, of the 12, six are brothers. You've never seen that before. We have Peter and Andrew, right? We have James and John, and then we have Matthew and James. God reorganizes even our families. He redeems them. And he works through them to bring redemption and reconciliation. What a beautiful thing that God does. But God, in reorganizing them, he then equips them with the message to preach and the power to validate said message, calling all to repent and believe and to come to this king and into this kingdom. Now, if we look at the the whole Bible, this kind of commissioning move, this play, if you will, by God, by Jesus, is not wholly new. Remember, in Exodus 19.6, if you look back, I'll just look at one verse. You don't necessarily have to, but God tells Israel that they will be something. Right? We said a holy nation, right? What else? A treasure possession, but also a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Now, what is a priest? A priest is the one who facilitates the relationship between God and man, right? So within Israel, within that people, there are, there are priests, right? There are Levitical priests, one type of priest who do the sacrifices, who lead the worship, who give the offerings, etc. But that's within them. But God in 19.6 here is saying what? You as an entire nation are going to be a kingdom of priests. As a nation, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Well, we should ask, who then were they to facilitate God's relationship with if they're a kingdom of priests? The answer is the nations. They were to be priests to the nations. If you even remember back further, God chose one man named Abraham, and he made a promise to him. Some of you likely have it memorized. He made a promise and covenant, and he told, God told Abraham he'd be a great nation, he'd have a great name, and that he would, he would be a blessing, that God would bless those who blessed Abe and curse those who, who dishonored him. And then What? That in and through Abraham and Abraham's descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Whoa. All the families of the earth blessed through this one man and his descendants. You see, God's relationship with Israel was to actually facilitate. It was actually to draw in the nations. As people saw God interact with this people, they were to be like priests, And the nations were to come in. That was the movement. Come on in. And we see it. There's Rahab's. There's Ruth's. There's plenty who come in to the people of God. But here's the great shift. Ready for it? 
The great shift here is that Jesus' newly created people, the 12, aren't just saying, come on in, but they're going out. This is the call to be fishers of men, right? They're going out to find the people. And so Jesus, who is really the first apostle, if you will, he comes as the Son of God from heaven to preach the gospel and to establish his kingdom. And if, if you see this here, Jesus is actually coming to do what Israel failed to do. They were bad kingdom, a kingdom of priests. They didn't do a good job. They didn't go out. They were too sinful even themselves. They only showed what a people shouldn't do so often. And so Jesus comes to be their perfect prophet, their perfect priest, and their perfect king. And then he appoints, creates these 12 to also be apostles. He names them that, which means sent ones or it means ambassadors. And to be clear, their type of apostleship is a unique office. Now, we're not talking about apostleship today, but theirs is a very unique office that they alone hold in history, and the scriptures show this. But what comes from them is a pattern of sent ones, little apostles, if you will. And Jesus is enacting this, and it will explode after he baptizes the church with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Right, sending out people everywhere. And so the late added or the untimely added one, Paul, in 2 Corinthians says this, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, the apostles? No, not just the apostles. Therefore, we, the church, are ambassadors for Christ. God, God making his appeal through us. God makes the appeal through us. Verse 13 to 19 are showing this expanding of Jesus' mission, not just him, but right, it's extending his reach. It's extending the gospel preaching. And the church full of nobodies, liabilities, and even traitors are called into that same pattern, created to fulfill that mission. You, re- you might remember or have heard parts of uh, John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech in ja- on January 20th, 1961. But he had that famous line, right? Ask not what your country can do for you, right? I'm not an impressionist, that's bad. But what you can do for your country. At times when we talk about preaching the gospel, uh, also known as evangelism, there is a posture that says, ask not what Jesus can do for you, but what you can go do for Jesus. Right? Giddy up. Here we go. But I think a better posture, one more in sync with what we witness in these verses, is ask not what you can do for Jesus, but instead look at what he has done for you. Look at what he's done for you. What has Jesus done for you? Do you see your inability to come to him? Your ability, though, to answer this question, your ability to answer this question reveals in what way or for what that you come to Jesus, for what you come to church for. What has Jesus done for you? If your answer is, I don't really know, or nothing, please don't leave without asking me this question. What could Jesus do for me? Me or someone else here would love to tell you that answer. But what the text is saying is our our passage shows that Jesus came to create a people, to reconcile sinners through his death, his resurrection, so that you would be with him. 
right? That we'd be with the triune God, brought into his eternal perfect love. And when you see and believe fully what Jesus has done for you, making you, creating out of you a new people, it is no question that joining in on the mission to preach the gospel is that next privileged step. You get to be an ambassador. You get to do what Jesus is doing. He invites you in. See, if you can imagine yourself moving towards an unchurched or dechurched person, it may be that you actually haven't yet grasped what Jesus has done for you. You perhaps don't understand yet how desperate your neighbors are with inconsequential lives, regardless of whatever they say. So we this morning must reorient our thoughts on what a Christian does and how a Christian lives. We join in to that mission that the apostles did. He called them to this, and he calls the church to this. So two things. One, be with him. Live with him. That's what we do when we come and we, we worship. We worship at home and praying and reading. We worship with our families, but especially here, God promises to be with us, so be with him. He goes with you everywhere, in fact, by the Spirit. And second, Jesus commissions you to go and find others to be with him as well. These two aims need to reorient your Christian life and your Christian sight. Be with him and go find others to be with him. Let me close with this. A long time ago in a far off land, not Star Wars, there was a crippled young man hiding from a king. This young man's grandfather actually had been the king, but, but the grandfather had been killed in battle. And this young man had become crippled. And he was actually hiding from the new king who had been crowned because it was typical in that day that if you became king, what do you do? You kill all those other people's bloodlines so that you secure your power. That's what is deserved in that day. But one day, the king discovered that this young man was alive and in hiding. The king had the crippled young man brought before him, and that man laid crumpled before the king on his face. And what does the king do next? He says, fear not. I will show you kindness. I will give you all the land that was your grandfather's, and you will eat at my table always. The king was King David. The young man was Mephibosheth. His grandfather was Saul. And though Mephibosheth deserved only death, King David gave him life, land, and what else? Himself. He sat him at his table and fed him for the rest of his days. The true King Jesus Christ summons you and I, unworthy nobodies, liabilities, and he creates out of us a new people to be with him, a new people to be ambassadors for him to the unbelieving world so that all together we might eat at his table as we will in but a moment here. Because Jesus creates a new people, come without an agenda, come to be with him, and come ready to go to the world. Let's pray. God, if you would not create us, we would never, never, not only come to be, but we would never leave our sin. We believe that life is found in sinning, in turning from you so often. Lord Jesus, would you expose our hearts today where we have an agenda? May we indeed have hearts created with a desire to just come to be with you, to live with and for you, and to declare to the nations that such a God exists and that he has come to redeem them. Bless us with faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.